All right, well, this evening we're going to do um, the future of languages, uh, which is somewhat hubris, I believe, is the word we're looking for. But uh, give it, I'll give it a shot. So we've covered, I think, 15 languages so far that have had remarkable and remarkably varied histories, developments, influences, sudden exciting changes. Um, but we've entered a period historically that is unprecedented. Um, globalization, technology, uh, mass migrations of peoples, it's nothing, this is just simply never happened before. I mentioned in the English language lecture that we've never had truly a global language because we've never had an integrated globe. English happens to be the first language to do that simply because of the first language that had the opportunity to do that. Other languages maybe could have done it as well, but it's only in the last hundred years that it's even possible to conceive of something uh, like, like a full global language that we have today. Um, and so I want to explore some of the trends that are happening now and extrapolate into the future with the caveat that you just never know. If the history of languages has shown us anything, is that you just never know. Uh, the, the two examples that stick out in my mind is one is Spanish. Like I said, a language from a country that didn't exist where almost no one spoke it ended up being, it's just, it's just huge, explosive. And then Latin, Latin has died like five times and yet somehow people keep speaking Latin. I'm not sure how this happens, but uh, it's, it's extraordinary. And so what the future really will be, um, who knows? So globalization, it's important to note that a lot of the things that we associate with literacy generally, like letter writing, grow out of territorial expansion. The bigger the territory your civilization, your language group covers, the more you need to write letters, hence the more letters you write. And people, we tend to look back at a letter writing culture in the past, well, there was a blossoming of this, a, a, a fluorescence of, of quality letters and in, in, intellectuals politicians, artists, everybody writing letters because the world had become so large and there was no other way to communicate with people. Letters were the most efficient means of doing this. And so people wrote lots and lots and lots of letters and literacy and communication through writing became common. Before it was the uh, uh, abstruse pastime of 0.1% of the population. But as uh, printing technology changes, which we'll talk about as uh, territorial expansion, advances in sailing, and then, of course, the, the, the world-conquering invention of steam power. The world gets much smaller, or the way I think about it is people get much further away from each other. They want to communicate, so they write letters, they write letters. Um, and this just changed the world. So this became a common means of communication, communication over long distances. And so people wrote to communicate. Well, of course, this has been going on, but we've replaced letter writing with many technologies now today. We had the telegraph was first, and then you have the phone, and now you have email and, and Twitter and social media, all these different ways of achieving what letters used to achieve. What it's an indication of is that there's somebody who's sufficiently far away from me that I want to communicate with that I need an electronic or, or artificial means to do that. For almost the entirety of human history and for almost everybody in the population, that never occurred. If there's somebody you wanted to communicate with, you went, hi. Because you knew everybody. You probably never went more than 10 or 15 or 20 miles from the place you were born in your entire life. Writing letters to people who are across the street from you doesn't make that much sense particularly since you weren't going to be literate anyway. So most of the history of humanity has been oral. Only in the very brief span of the last few hundred years at most have we had this appendage of written culture, which then rapidly became uh, telephone culture, which is oral culture at a distance, which is very weird. When you, if you use the phone, everybody knows this, right? It's not the same as talking to somebody face-to-face, -face, which is then morphed back into email, which is sort of written, badly written communication at a distance, <laughs> right? Uh, 
And now Twitter, which is, I don't even know what the hell that is, telegraphic communication again, apparently, and then just sending pictures and, and, and whatnot. But globalization has a huge impact on the spread of language just because it spreads people around who still want to talk to each other, which is new, relatively new, uncommon. I mean, if you look back at history, as you start spreading out, value gets placed on bilingual, multilingualism, really. I've mentioned this several times. Um, but if you look at someone like the, the explorer, crazy guy, discoverer of Troy Schliemann, um, was noted linguist. He was for a while, he was ambassador to Russia, and he wrote all of his um, diaries and official accounts, and so he's speaking Russian, uh, which is not his native language, but he wrote all of his diaries and everything in, I believe it was Attic Greek. <laughs> so for the, the official records of that time are from Schliemann writing in Attic Greek. And then he came to America for a while and just learned English so well everybody thought he was just an American. And then, but he, he just learned language after language after language, but it turns out he was very gifted obviously, but it was hugely valuable at the time because there was no lingua franca. There was no agreed language. If you went to China, you probably need to learn Chinese. A few people at court might, learn, might, might know French, but it's going to be not many. If you wanted to do business and get on, you want to learn Chinese. If you want to get on in Russia, you want to learn Russian. And so the emphasis was on written communication at a distance and then lots of people who had multiple languages that created sort of their own subpopulation. But this, of course, is changing now with the advent, again, of English as a truly global language. And this is starting to have all kinds of strange uh, phenomena, one of which, which I don't, as far as I know, no one predicted, but is happening, um, is the increase of sort of second or third tier languages. So in England, Gaelic and Welsh are storming back. They're a huge return of Gaelic and Welsh. Um, why? No one's quite sure, but it seems to be that if you get an increasingly sense of internationalism, we're all part of one big world, we're all part of the EU, we're all part of the United Nations, and you have a de facto international language, English, which is not your language necessarily, well then, go local. I have a language to communicate with everybody else, so the language I'm really going to focus on is Basque, or Frisian, or... Uh, or Gaelic, or, and this is apparently going on all over the world. The Chinese are actually very aggressively fighting this off because they, they, they like a, a mass spread of standardized Chinese. But even in China, this isn't working so well. So it, it seems to be, no one's quite sure exactly why this happening, but it seems to be a response to the notion that, oh, we all know what our second language is going to be, so we can emphasize whatever we want with our first language. It's why Americans don't feel like they need to learn a second language because everywhere they go, everybody speaks English. Well, if you're in um, Russia, you don't need to necessarily learn Russian. If you think everybody's going to speak English, you might learn a local dialect of, of, of some other language. If you're in, in one of the uh, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Pipelineistan, as we call it, one of the one of the oil-rich uh, 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 Stan countries around there are having again their re the rebirth of their language. Armenian is coming through, going through a big cultural rebirth and reinforcement, uh, and it seems like the cost of doing that is lower um, because we know again if we learn English, we know we're set, so then we can do whatever else we want. Um, but see, again, this is. Partly speculative, but it's definitely going on. So globalization is a huge influence here. And there's no reason to expect that's not going to continue. Now, it might break down at any moment, but right now it looks like we're going to become increasingly globalized, not less globalized. Second, of course, is technology, technology, technology. I mean, uh, the letter was a big breakthrough. Telegraph was uh, immense because the capacity to spend, send messages across the country, across the world, across everywhere in, in hours rather than months um, is an extraordinary uh, uh, change in communication technology. But now we, you know, this is rapidly even increased even further because you can call or Skype people, see them face to face, essentially anywhere in the world that has internet connection, which is most of the world now. Astounding. Even very poor parts of the world generally use what they have internet cafes, which is essentially a way of communally paying for an internet connection and computers. 
And so you might be desperately poor, but it doesn't mean you don't have access, at least at limited amounts of time, to the internet, which is it's transformative. But some of the other things that's come along is we're about an two, three, four, very short distance away from the sort of Star Trek universal translator. Because we have two, two related issues going on. One, we have voice recognition software is getting very much better. How many of you have a phone that you can talk to and it'll do searches for you? People have that capacity on their phones? Yeah, so that's the voice recognition software. It's getting better rapidly. And so soon you just be able to talk. The other thing we have is machine translation. How many people have used Google Translate, right? Now, now if, if you look at the flyer, this is, this is an example of machine translation. Uh, in order to be in or not, it is a problem, both noble and tis in the mind, that you are suffering. Arrows of outrageous fortune and ropes, or to take up arms against a sea of troubles. Out to face them, to die, to sleep any more but time, and do, to say we end thousand natural shocks and heart pain, the flesh is air, meat, Tis if eagerly desire. <laughs> of course, when you know what this is, yeah. Yeah, this is Hamlet's to be or not to be as delivered by Yoda. That's what I decided. It was, this is, because I just love that opening. It is, in order to be in or not, it is a problem. It is. This is very, that's sort of Yoda-like. Actually, this is a translation, so I, I mechanically translated uh, to be or not to be into Arabic. And then I translated it back into English. And, and so you kind of get this mush. And if you do it through four or five languages, it's hilarious what you get back. Sometimes it's unidentifiable, which suggests that machine translation is not quite there. But we're getting better all the time. And so it doesn't seem like it's too far off in the distance where you'll be able to uh, hold up your cell phone and say, uh, is there a nice restaurant in your village? And the other person holds up their phone and it simply translates to them immediately, instantly. And so they don't hear you saying that, they hear their language and then they would talk to you and yours just translates it back. Um, we're, I mean, we're, we're very close. This is already people, you can use this on web pages with Google already. And again, you do get some interesting things but it's generally good enough to allow you to figure out vaguely what was, what's going on. That will only improve. In fact, it's, it's improving quite rapidly. So four, five, six, seven years, it's on the foreseeable horizon, which would be an amazing achievement. What impact will have on language? I'm not sure. Why would you ever learn another language when anybody you, you're likely to speak with, you have a machine, you have a universal translator? I mean, I don't know. It's an interesting question. Um, so that's one of the things to look for, is the advent potentially of a universal translator. And, and what, again, what influence that will have, I'm not sure, but it will be different. Uh, second, the return of calligraphy. Also on the flyer, you'll see two examples of calligraphy, one from a Chinese, one from Arabic. Arabic script, in, in particularly quite beautiful, many different kinds of Arabic script, uh, flavors of, of Arabic calligraphy. The alphabet and printing technology uh, required certain changes in the way language was used. They're not, they aren't, they're not neutral on, on, on how you address this. To do early printing meant you needed to set up each page mechanically. People have seen the lead type printers, which means you needed a set alphabet. You didn't want to set up every page of every book different for every author which meant you can't have calligraphy because there's no way to set that. If you wanted to do a book in calligraphy, you had to carve every plate by hand. Very expensive, very time consuming. For almost the entire history of written records, calligraphy was what people did. In fact, one of the big breakthroughs with cuneiform tablets was it sort of got away from calligraphy. It's like, oh, it, it, it was more mechanical. But generally, not just what you wrote, but how you wrote it, how beautifully, how you sculpted the letters, how you arranged them. This all mattered. When you get the standardization of printing in the printing press, 
Well, you eliminate all that individuality. You just, you just get rid of it. You standardize the presentation of the written text, and you also need to standardize the alphabet. And so this has happened. And, and, and so many non-alphabetic languages, Chinese springs to mind, Arabic, uh, has many elements of this, faced a challenge. How do you make a Chinese typewriter? If anybody's ever seen the old Chinese typewriters, they're huge. They're like three feet by three feet. And they had lots of keys. Well, this is no good. <laughs> it's really grossly inefficient. So both the Chinese and particularly the Japanese for a while thought long and hard about a changing to an alphabet-based language, changing their language to an alphabet. Um, they both decided not to. And now it turns out that probably the right decision because you don't need an alphabet anymore. Now we can print in, a, an individual text as easily one copy as 10,000 copies as 10 million copies. Because we don't set up actual physical type blocks anymore. It's all done by computer. You scan in an image and you reproduce it. You print it. It's no problem. And so I think one of the things we may see very rapidly is the return of increasingly unique individualistic sort of calligraphic texts where how something is written, the shape of the letters matters as much or is a, is, is a complement to what is being written, which is a return to pretty much the history of writing because it used to all be done by scribes and monks and scholars who generally took great care. In fact, you look at some of the ancient books, they took unbelievable care. I would certainly be illiterate by their standards because I write like a, a dead chicken, you know, my horrible handwriting. But, but they wrote beautifully. Their calligraphy was just absolutely astounding. And they spent hours and years training to develop those, those skills and capacities. So we may be seeing a return to this because it allows for greater individual expression, basically, is, is what it amounts to. You can achieve more and more varied effects if you're allowed to present letters and words in any way you like. Uh, and so I'm hoping, and, and it very seems likely, we'll return to the more beautiful texts that we had in the past. But again, we'll see. People may not like them. We might just stick with the clean uh, sort of mechanical reproduction that we've grown used to. Um, also, in this one, I think we're already seeing, to a great degree, um, is the return of the image as the prime or a prime force in communication. And here I think the example is the ancient cathedrals of the Catholic Church, although lots of cultures did this, where the most or one of the most important elements were the stained glass <laughs> windows that told the stories. Because remember, in the ancient Catholic Church, they were speaking in a language that nobody understood. And the priests didn't face you anyway. They turned their back and talked that way. So you didn't know what they were saying, and they weren't talking to you anyway. Well, how did you learn anything? <coughs> well, you had these great stories in really large images. And again, there's a very, very long tradition of the beauty of the presentation of pictorial stories. This goes back before writing, of course, predates it. Um, the, the day I like to look at is, is when USA Today came out and began being published. If anybody's familiar with this newspaper, uh, it's really just a collection of pictures. And I, on one hand, I think, well, that's just pathetic because <laughs> it's, it's not a newspaper. It's a collection of pictures. On the other hand, and this predates the Internet, by the way. A lot of people like to say, oh, well, this is all caused by the Internet, so on and so forth. No, this, the, the USA Today is before this. This was already going on heavy shift back to the pictorial, to the image. But if you haven't seen a USA Today, I would say buy one, steal one, uh, and, and, and just flip through it. Because what you'll see is on most pages, 80 to 90% of the page will be picture, image, graphics. Some pages will be 100% image or graphic. That's how far, and by the way, it's, it's either the most widely circulated or the second most widely circulated paper in the United States. Depends on who's scoring it. So it is hugely popular. It has been very popular basically since it was introduced. People like pictures. Now that we have the means to communicate easily and efficiently in pictures, this is what people are doing. 
Uh, there's a, lots of studies done on people on the internet, and one of the ones they do is they contract people's eye movements. And so they do these big studies where, where they just have people use the internet and they track their eye movements. And the results are there is no reason for there to be any text on the internet whatsoever. <laughs> this is what they tell people. Oh, you have to have a little text so that people might want to read something, maybe, but almost no one ever reads any text. They just, they just don't. They read a tiny bit. I think the average time per web page, I looked this up a, a couple months ago, was like eight seconds. It's long enough to see a picture and go, oh, or a graphic, or an image, or an object, and then move on. And so much, not all, of course, you can read a lot if you like online, but much or most of what we are apparently doing is associated heavily with graphics. We like pictures. So if you look at the modern social media sites like Facebook, very picture intensive. Uh, Pinterest, is that right? Is that what's called? That's the right, correct name for it. Pinterest yeah. is all about pictures. It's organized by pictures. It's portfolios of pictures. Hugely popular. People love it. Vine, way of sending pictures and short videos. All these are overwhelming what we consider a traditional text-based medium. That is a very old way of looking at the internet as a medium. It's not a text-based. Usage suggests strongly not a text-based, image-based, which is very much in the tradition of most of the history of humanity when most people are illiterate. So we seem to be moving back to that or maybe to a new form of, of visual uh, pictorial representation as a way of interacting with the world. Um, Comic books, comic books, yeah, that's right, absolutely. Comic books is a way of approaching that. Very little text, lots of pictures. Turns out you don't need that much text in some instances. Another aspect of this, also along the same lines, oral culture is returning. Much of our communication technology, cell phones, uh, Skyping, allows for oral communication. It turns out that people like to talk to other people. It's very, you know, just sort of written into us. And given the opportunity, we would rather, for instance, come to a lecture like this and see somebody and at least listen to the human voice live with other people than read it. This is, it, it the, the, the evidence is perfectly clear. Given the opportunity, people prefer to hear it, not to read it. As the technology is advancing, and it's becoming much cheaper, for instance, to do books on tape, books on tapes are going much more popular. The cost of putting them on cassette tapes, if anybody remembers that far back, uh, <laughs> was immense because it took a lot of cassette tapes, and that was an expensive medium. And then they put them on CDs, which held a little more, but also expensive. Now you can download it very inexpensively, put it on digital media, erase it. It's, the cost is negligible. Um, as far as the media goes, I mean, you have the cost of, of, of the material itself, but the media is so cheap. And so I don't see a reason for this to stop. And now uh, the Kindle and all the e-readers have the capacity to actually read the book to you. So you can download a, an electronic written textbook, but you can have it speak it back to you. As, this, as the talking software gets better, much like the voice recognition and machine translation software, I expect this to become a major, if not the preferred way, because we love the human voice. How many people, how many people have done books on tape of some form or another? It, it's, it's a very different experience, right? It's, it's, it's a lovely, I think. I think it's a great experience, quite different. Um, and so we may be seeing technology shifting us away from the print again, towards pictures, but also towards the oral. When, when, when uh, Apple came up with the uh, iPod as a way of carrying music around, they weren't thinking, I don't believe, so much of, of, of the oral book or the oral lecture. But this seems to be what, one of the things that it's led to, because people like to hear text spoken, read. It's very popular um, and increasingly popular. The radio is doing this as well. And so this is very different. All, all of these trends of maybe we never would need to learn a second language because we have technology to intervene for us. I, I'm suspicious of this in like a thousand ways, by the way. I, I just think 
you can, there are things that I would argue are untranslatable. Uh, a great example is in Russian, uh, if you like, you know, Dostoevsky or whatnot, most of, the, all of the characters essentially are born on days of saints. And so their names, of which they have a ridiculous number, one of the names that they'll be called by will be the name of the saint of the day on which they were born. And so there's almost no way to translate that unless you know all the names of the saints and their backgrounds. But you lose a lot of the impact and a lot of the implication when you don't know that connection. See, this isn't a machine translation problem. This is that it's a different culture problem. Um, and so how those things will be mitigated, I don't know. So I remain suspicious of it. But I think it's coming, and we're probably getting closer all the time. Um, I can't see any downside to the return of calligraphy because I'm all for the more beautiful uh, book. Let's just get the more beautiful books. Um, and same thing with, with the image and oral culture. I, I'm just curious, if anybody has seen the new math books, by the way, this is another example, new math textbooks, particularly for like elementary and junior high school kids. I don't know how anyone learns math from them because they have so many pictures. I, find, I feel overwhelmed by the amount of graphics. It's like, where is the formula? Just tell me what I'm supposed to do. It's, it's quite daunting, I would find it. But it's, it's this sort of visually, they call it a visually rich environment that is theoretically helpful. I often find it confusing and off-putting. If anybody's ever tried to read Wired magazine, um, I, I find it unreadable, another experiment you can run. Because it's so graphically intense, I can't find the words. And I want to find the words, but I can't find them, and so I just get confused. Uh, and so I, I don't read it. Uh, it's often a stupid magazine anyway. But uh, that's probably, that's aside the point. Uh, but, but, so, but this is this coming and it's influencing all kinds of things right now. And I see no reason why this would become less influential. In fact, I expect in many ways it will become more influential. Um, another issue that's coming up is the specialization of language. There is an argument made about Shakespeare that he is not only the greatest author in the English language, he is the greatest author who ever will be in the English language because he was the last author who had universal access to English. He was in walking distance from the palace where he was and played, knew many of the nobles. So he knew the court uh, functionaries, he knew the servants, he knew the nobles. And he could walk through the tanneries, he could walk through the millwrights, the barrel makers, the cooks, the thieves, the prostitutes, all the people, all the way out into the countryside, which at this point is only five or six miles away. If he walks 10 miles, he can talk to a peasant who probably doesn't even know London exists, right? I mean, he, he, all the way out to the rural countryside where he's got farmers, the language of animal husbandry. He can talk to everybody. And the language is almost entirely mutually comprehensible. So I want to give you two examples now from what's happened to the language. This is both of these. One is just a press release today, and this was on Google News. So this is for the general public. So this is not something chosen to be abstruse or, or terrible, but it's, it's um, OpenStack Icehouse features a trove of open source cloud updates. <laughs> Database as service technology, live upgrades, strong storage improvements, and federated identity are part of the new open source cloud platform release. The OpenStock Foundation is set to officially debut its next major milestone release, dubbed Icehouse, on April 17th, providing a long list of cloud feature updates and enhancement. OpenStack was originally started as an open source project by Rackspace and NASA in July 19, uh, 2010, has since evolved to become a leading cloud platform supported by many of the world's top IT vendors. The new house house comes six months after the OpenStack Havana release came out in October 2013. As part of the ICE house, the OpenStack platform is now gaining a new project with the inclusion of the Trove database as service, DAS technology. Trove was originally known as Project Red Dwarf and got its start in 2011 with the support of Rackspace and Hewlett Packard. Rackspace today has a cloud database service that is built on top of the same technology that is in Trove. <laughs> I mean, what in the hell? are they talking about? It's not as complicated as it sounds. Yeah, I know. On one hand, somebody's doing something with some open source stuff that has to do with online services. But the use of acronyms and the renaming of things, like Icehouse here obviously does not 
refer to some sort of refrigerated space with ice in it. So they've stolen that. Trove does not refer to a place piled up with treasure. Um, so, and then DOS for database as service technology. So, and Project Red Dwarf, which is not a Red Dwarf star at all. Uh, so two things are happening. You have the use of specific te technology language, technical language, um, and then you have the stealing of words that mean other things, but in this environment means something completely different. Um, and then you have lots of, again, acronyms and, and proper nouns like OpenStack, Hewlett-Packard, and NASA. And again, this is a public press release for the general consumption, right? And it turns out that every field now does this. They put out press releases, announcements, and you just read them and you go, what are they talking about? If you're familiar with that field, no problem. If you're not, virtually incomprehensible. Here's another one that I like. Um, this is from just from Wikipedia. So again, this is not a highly technical source. Um, this is about... Uh, uh, current formulations of quantum mechanics, always an easy field. So Schrodinger himself initially did not understand the fundamental probabilistic nature of quantum mechanics, as he thought that the absolute square of the wave function of an electron should be interpreted as the change of density of a uh, charge density of an object smeared out over an extended, possibly infinite, volume of space. It was Max Born who introduced the interpretation of the absolute square of the wave function as the probability distribution of the position of a point-like object. Born's idea was soon taken over by Niels Born in the Copenhagen, who then became the father of the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics. Schrodinger's wave function can be seen to be closely related to the classical Hamilton-Jacobi equations. The correspondence of classical mechanics was even more explicit, although somewhat more formal, in the Heisenberg matrix mechanics. All right. Excellent. Um, again, for the non-specialists, there's just essentially no way to pierce all of this. Who are these people? We don't know. Notice in Shakespeare, you have a few named noble people. Everybody knew who they were. And then you had people who were Bob the Millwright, Hamlet the Prince of Denmark. We know who all these people are. It's very easy to make the list of people because there's only about six jobs that anybody can hold. Well, now there's millions of jobs that people can hold, and they're often mutually incomprehensible. It's one of the great claims that you hear people say, well, it's hard to understand the language of science. This is a complete misstatement. Don't believe it when people tell you this. Scientists do not understand what other scientists are doing. They have no idea. If you're in a specialist field of quantum wave mechanics and you're trying to make Bose-Einstein condensates or some such, You'll have no idea what the people the next lab over are doing with some sort of chemistry. None. Zero. Because they're doing something completely off. And those people may have no idea what the chemists across the building from them are doing, even though they're theoretically all chemists. It's become incredibly specialized. Um, a recent big mathematical proof carried out by a great Russian mathematician took a team of, I think, well, no, it was two teams, each made up of several world-class mathematicians over a year to agree that he had, in fact, proved what he said he had proved. Because they had to study up in his specialty of mathematics, in this case, Ricci Flow, to try and figure out whether or not he had really done it. So he was, the, the approach was so specialized that nobody really on their own could figure it out and really demonstrate that it was true. To teams of people a long period of time to agree and formalize that, yes, this was a, a perfectly good and sound proof. So specialization has gone so far as to make whole groups of the language, English, of course, this is all English in theory. Um, in practice, who knows? Um, mutually incomprehensible. You can't, you know, these people can't talk to those people, can't talk to these people. Um, because the, the special, the language and the acronyms in particular, the horrible spread of acronyms, uh, it's a plague, uh, it is so common that until you learn all of the specialty language and the acronyms, you're basically frozen out. I think much of this is entirely unnecessary, by the way, I would argue. A lot of specialization is so much uh, bunk uh, in the language. However, some of it is helpful because it's a shorthand. And, and even at that level, you know, we run into problems. 
And so the specialization, we have no reason to expect, by the way, the world is suddenly going to become less complicated. Um, and since it's not going to become less complicated, it's probably going to increase these areas of specialization. And so whereas Shakespeare could use language that virtually everybody understood, remember in Shakespeare's time, he had people in the pits who paid virtually nothing to show up and were probably drunk and very rowdy, all the way to, to, to noble people, the highest people in the society sitting up in the very nice expensive seats. Um, and everybody in between, and they all apparently enjoyed themselves immensely. So he could cover the complete range with the language. That's, it's impossible today. The, the language does not allow you to get uh, uh, all the people and all their specialties and sort of bundle it together. At least it's extraordinarily difficult. And so if I want to write a novel about Silicon Valley that's super realistic and uses all the slang and nuance and words today, probably I either have to have a glossary and an index, boring, nothing interferes with a, a novel more than a glossary, um, or I just have to write off a certain part of the population. I just have to say, eh, if you don't get it, if you're not part of the in crowd, then forget you. I'm not trying to communicate to you, which is fine as a strategy, but it does create this sort of narrow specialization, these sort of columns or silos of comprehension that then they, they, they don't spread very far. And so it's a, it's a curious impact on the language when what people do all day in very specialized fields with very specialized language is often not communicable socially. My, my brother is a computer guy and I ask him what he does and he starts talking and I say, please stop now. <laughs> you know, because, you know, it's, it's, it's basically, I, 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 just don't, I just don't know what he does. Uh, he does something with SSL, whatever that is. Um, you know, SQL, that's an SQL, SQL language. Um, but but it's, it's just hard to, to, to communicate what that is. What does he do all day? How does he do it? How does he spend his time? What kinds of things does he think about at work? Before, this was perfectly, I mean, you, again, read Shakespeare, but not just Shakespeare, people from that time and even later were able to capture huge swaths of the human experience as lived and as spoken by the people themselves. And this is increasingly lost. Um, so the vocabulary and specialization on one hand, another thing that's happening is you're getting a massive increase in dialects. So already in Hong Kong, there's a version of English that is so sort of specialized that their argument is, is it really English anymore? Because in theory, just about everybody in Hong Kong speaks English. But in practice, everybody in Hong Kong wants to also speak Chinese. And so what you're getting is this blending of, of native Chinese speakers, native English speakers, and then the mix of that, and they're coming up with a sort of Chinese-English, English-Chinese, that the people in Hong Kong understand perfectly well and use as a language. This is, by the way, this is exactly the same way Latin became Italian, French, and Spanish. It just, it broke off from, from the mother language, local languages influenced, but as Hong Kong was, you know, sort of became whatever its relationship is with China complex, but uh, China becomes more powerful. Hong Kong immensely rich and international. But China increasingly powerful. And so the, the, the importance of mixing the Chinese becomes more important. And so we get a new, is it a new language? Is it a new version of English? Is it a new version of Chinese? What is it? And so one of the things that seems to be happening is English is starting to throw off kind of dialects uh, rapidly. And all in, in many parts of the world. So it's, it's, it's a very interesting um, phenomenon that we can look to accelerate. So again, we, so we have all these technological issues. We have the specializations which simply grows from the increasingly complex world in which we live. We have telecommunications, which means for the first time in the world, um, you can have Arabic, Chinese, Japanese, Indian language beamed into your house. You can watch TV in a foreign language all day long if you want, if you have a satellite dish. It's easy to get access to a foreign language. And this is true everywhere in the world, pretty much, where it's not heavily censored. And even there, generally speaking, people have it anyway. Um, and so 
great, huge diversity, huge complexity. Where does this go? A couple of things to keep in mind. English is now, again, without doubt, the dominant language in the world. However, if history suggests anything, is that if you are on top, you have exactly one way to go. Uh, right? There's, it's almost inconceivable that English could become more dominant. Maybe that'll happen. It's just hard to figure out how it could do that. Which suggests very strongly that it's going to become less dominant. What are the forces that could, could lead to this fall off in English? One is demographic. There's only about 370, 80, 90 million people who speak English as a first language, which is not that many. There's a, you know, a billion Chinese first language speakers, uh, 600, 700 million um, uh, in India who speak some version of, of the same language. You know, it, it's not that many. It's the second language speakers of English who really carry the day. And so it's perfectly possible that for demographic reasons, English will begin to fade. Notice this is, by the way, is how English conquered the Americas. North America, okay, you have the settlers, they come in and they settle. But even when the settlers got here, there were a lot more Indians than there were settlers. But intense agriculture means lots of population. And slowly the Indians not only were devastated by disease, but they were overwhelmed uh, by the demographic switch. There were simply more uh, European uh, <coughs> invaders, settlers, whatever you want to think of them, uh, friends from abroad who come to take your land, um, uh, uh, reproducing than there were natives reproduction. It was just a much higher rate. And so we swamped, the European um, settlers swamped demographically the natives who are here. This has happened in all kinds of regions of the world repeatedly throughout history. This is how China was settled. Farmers moved across China, generally south, and, and, ex and expanded and had more intense, larger populations. And demographically, they outgrew everybody else. And because our demographics are, relatively speaking, we're native English speakers, 7 8% of the world population, there's a very good chance, and not growing, by the way. The native English-speaking population is not growing nearly as fast as many others. Um, another way to think of this is if the uh, Arabic-speaking world were to form some sort of loose coalition, um, which is potential, not necessarily, not, perhaps not even likely, but potentially, that would be 900 or a billion Arabic speakers. 900 million or a billion, somewhere right around that mark. So that would be huge linguistic base. Well, all of a sudden, if they sort of said, hey, we're working out some big deal with China, well, now China and the Arabic world start learning Chinese and Arabic, pretty soon you're going to want to know Chinese and or Arabic. Because 375 million speakers is nice. 2.5 billion speakers is really, really impressive. Um, so that is one of the, the, the trends that may work against English in the future, but we don't know. Mitigating that is the fact that how many schools in the United States have Chinese as a second language? There's a few. I know there are. It's not a lot. In China, it's on the curriculum for English in every school. So you have a billion-ish you know, people in China, of whom about 300 million are in school, learning English. They're learning Chinese, too. But they're learning English. In the United States, the converse is not happening because, of course, we don't want to learn anybody's crappy language. We have English. <laughs> right? This is our official world policy. Right? I mean, it's true. We, just, we, just, we are not going to learn another language yet, yet, until we need to, at which point we will. Uh, trust me, as soon as, it, as soon as it becomes necessary, we will rapidly develop the desire to know foreign languages. If it's necessary. Again, the technology might mitigate this again, and it turns out that nobody ever needs to learn a second language as long as in history. Learning a second language might become something like uh, knowing how to hook a horse up to a carriage. People are like, well, that's really interesting. I don't know why they waste their time doing that, but that's fascinating that they know how to hook a horse up to a carriage. Something that was completely natural 100 years ago 
is now sort of, well, Amish people do it, maybe. Um, who else? We don't know. Nobody. Why? Why would you bother? 50 years, it might be the exact same thing. Why would you bother to learn two languages? Look, I have a device. I put it on the desk, and it, it translates everything. What could possibly be the point? So we don't know. Another thing that could mitigate against the spread and dominance of English is simply a, a decline in um, economic power. Again, we, this is not necessarily on the horizon, but history suggests you never see these things coming. Every, every empire was a, you know, a thousand-year Reich, let us say, until a couple of years later when it wasn't, right? And so this notion that you're always going to continue as the most powerful, history suggests strongly you aren't. So at some point, who knows when, our economic dominance will decline. Almost certainly at that point, the, the need for English or the desire for English as a second language will start to wane. This is precisely what happened with French. French for, Fr French, France for a couple of hundred years was the rich, powerful, organized, happening country in Europe. And so everybody wanted to learn French because they had all the money, they had the trade, they had the science, they had the literature. It all was this big ball, and learning French allowed you to access that. Well, then, of course, things got a little dicey in France, and the, the need and the desire to learn French sort of dwindled. But notice, even now, several hundred years after the fact, French still has that resonance of the language of civilization. Latin, wow, has a resonance from 2,000 years ago. That is impressive. That's a lot of resonance. The notion that your, your, your civilization could pretty much have been stomped out 1,600 years ago, and people are like, yeah, Latin. You should learn Latin. Latin's a good language, important civilization. It's an impressive run. So it could be that if we were able to look back three or 400 years from now, English is still a prestige language, but not really a necessary language. Who knows what the necessary language could, would be at the time? Could be anything. Again, Spanish, nobody predicted the spread of Spanish, no one. Because, again, only a few people in Spain, statistically, maybe 40% of the population, spoke Spanish. And Spain wasn't a particularly big country. In fact, it wasn't really even a country at the time. Spanish speakers all live in the New World. Like I said, soon, the United States is, is on pace to become the second or third largest Spanish-speaking country in the world. We're going to pass Spain. If we haven't already, we're soon to pass Spain. That's how few people in Spain speak Spanish, <laughs> right? Even though it's one of the world's dominant languages, it's, it's, it's astounding to think about. So we don't know, again, that could be, that could be on the way. Um, India, if India organizes around one or two major domestic languages, which they could, then, wow, all of a sudden, you would have, in a, in a generation, four, five, six hundred million people speaking a very ancient, rich language, but now is being spread much more broadly. That could be a huge force in the entire Indian subcontinent, both for political and uh, cultural development and for the spread of the Indian languages, which basically, outside of India, no one speaks. If you're not part of, the, uh, of, of someone who was born there and moved abroad, essentially, I mean, it's, not zero, it's a non-zero number, but it's not very much beyond that. So it's been very unsuccessful in spreading, um, which, is, which is quite interesting. No reason to see why that would be, but so far it just has not spread. And so we don't know. Again, we, what the future holds, we don't know, but it's almost certainly not going to be the continued dominance of English. Uh, one of the things we may be moving to, which I think would be fascinating, as I mentioned with the oral and imagistic uh, or uh, pictorial issues, uh, is a post-literate society. We may lose the capacity to read because it makes no sense to read. Reading is an incredibly difficult skill to learn. We forget this because we're not young. Cozy over here is young. She's struggling with it. But, but, but most of us... Learn to read so long ago we don't remember. If you don't think reading is hard, try to read something in a language you don't understand. And remember, that's where we all started. We started trying to read things in a language we didn't understand. 
It's an extraordinarily difficult intellectual task to learn to read. If at some point it's unnecessary, any book I need to access I can have spoken to me, much more pleasant in many ways. Any information I need I can get as an image. Wow, that is a very different world. I think one way of understanding the, the history of the past 500 years is simply the spread of literacy. Literacy projects a certain kind of mind, a certain kind of thinking, a certain kind of experience of the world. For most of human history, most people couldn't read. So this is not like some you know, incredible development. We had you know, thousands of years of mostly illiterate people, no problem. Full, rich, wonderful lives. But it would be a huge change from what we're used to. Because, again, we, we misunderstand or underappreciate the technology of reading. A couple of things to note. One is you read quietly in your own mind. It is essentially an individual activity. One reason reading was so carefully scrutinized, controlled, uh, censored, um, militarily intervened in, translating the Bible into your vernacular language was generally print, uh, subject to death, is because it's you by yourself. Spoken cultures are public. Right, reading to yourself is in your own mind. So you can read something and go, well, that's bullshit. I, I, don't, I don't believe that. If you're in a group like this, or if you're in a small study circle with the priest or, or, or the guru or the political leader, and they say, oh, there's four noble truths. The first noble truth is that life is suffering. And you go, what? I enjoy life. Life's not suffering. What the hell are you talking about? This isn't work. This is unpopular. Other people get mad at you. It disrupts the process. And, and, and so one thing is that, is that reading is really this quiet, liberatory experience. And you can see this because as soon as books become widely available, you get trouble. This is the first thing that happens with the spread of literacy. And the first thing, because it used to be that originally books didn't have spaces between the words. This is why monks had to read out loud, and they would mumble in their cells, because you couldn't read it quietly in your own mind. That skill hadn't been developed, and without the spaces in the word, it was immensely more difficult. Once you could read quietly in your mind, two things get printed in vast quantities. One, pornography, right out the get-go. I can read quietly to myself, I want pornography, right? So I said, really, this is, this is number one. Number two are thousands and thousands and thousands of tracts that say in various ways, the man in charge can kiss my ass, right? This is just, this is just in any number of ways. The theses that are tacked to the wall that set the Reformation rolling are only possible because people could read them privately. If you went out on the street corner and said, here's my 99 things I think are wrong with the Catholic, right? They just, it's, just, it's just a spear, a sword, a club. Something would immediately be... You know, this did not work very well. And the history of this is really clear. It was hard and it was much easier to control that sort of public uh, um, presence. Remember, one of the fundamental rights in the, in the US, United States Constitution, the Bill of Rights, is the right to, to organize and collect in groups. Why did they have that? Because for, that had been interdicted so often in history to prevent people from getting together and arguing and debating and discussing, but mostly of giving speeches that said, we don't like the people in charge. And so the literacy and reading quietly allows you to have this space in your mind where you bring things in, imagine them, understand them, respond to them, and even argue with them, also at your own pace. This is another key thing about the technology of reading. You control the pace. If you don't understand something, you can go back. If you disagree with something, you can cross it out on the page. If you want to understand something better, you can underline it. If you think it's boring, you can flip ahead. How many people have done that? Boring, boring, boring. Oh, I like this part. Right? You just, I don't care what this guy's saying. I'm just skipping it all. Right? 
And so there is a, it's a very different way of relating to knowledge than we'd ever had in the past. It's interesting if you read something like the Phaedrus uh, by, by Plato, one of the Socratic dialogues, Socrates argues against writing things down. He says the problem with writing things down is you can't question the person who, gives the, who made the writing. You don't know what they meant. You don't know what was in their heart. You don't know what their intention was. And we know that words can mislead us. And it's clear that he was very suspicious of the written word. It's also clear that his politics were somewhat conservative. He was very suspicious of the average person, not a huge supporter of democracy, old Socrates. Um, certainly not Plato, because of this notion of quiet personal reflection. Uh, ooh, it was troubling, troubling in the beginning of literacy, troubling throughout the history of literacy, troubling today. And so we have this, Weird potential change. Well, it's not potential change. People are reading less. We know this. this is not even close. Reading, people are not only reading less, people are reading much less. Um, the average TV viewing by official statistics, I can't believe it's this high. I'd just like to say that from the beginning. But the official statistics suggest it's 20 to 30 hours a week per person uh, in the United States. Uh, book reading is something like 12 minutes per person per ah. week. Right? So it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a huge, vast chasm. But important to remember that a lot of people used to read because there was nothing else to do. And the second they got something better to do, they stopped reading to do the more enjoyable thing. And so this notion that we have of, of interacting with text may be on the way out. It's had a good four or five hundred year run, but you know what? Maybe that's it. Maybe, maybe we're done with that. Another way to think about this, I get this from my students, um, is think about video games, the interactivity of it, the notion that somebody else gets to dictate the narrative that I have to read through just seems absurd to them. I want to shape it. I want to participate in it. I want to be in the story, which would make perfect sense, right? I mean, if you read a great novel, how many times have you projected yourself into the story in your imagination? I think it's one of the great powers of the novel is to allow us to imagine to be in another place, another time, another experience of the world besides our own, expanding our horizons in amazing ways. Well, we have technology now that maybe allows us to do that in a much greater, more powerful way. Fully immersive, visually realistic, auditorially uh, enhanced. Maybe we'll get smell-o-vision, right, where we can smell things that would theoretically be great. Um, I don't know, though. I mean, on one hand, I'm hugely attached, attached to the word and the book. On the other hand, that just might be old-fashioned. But so this is, this is, but these changes are afoot. What we used to consider to be literate, we are not anymore, by the way. Again, if you know one language, you wouldn't have been counted literate or educated at essentially any time in the history of, of the world. This doesn't count. If you don't have huge hundreds of pages of text memorized, and of the right texts, by the way, not any text, the right texts. Um, even today in the Islamic world, memorizing the Quran is a very uh, important thing for many, many people to do, which is, is an extraordinary achievement. You can do it. But for us, we like, why would you memorize it? You've got it right there in the book. But this used to be one of the things people, people would do. Uh, again, Shakespeare being famous, people... Many, many educated people for, for decades, for the last 150, 200 years, when Shakespeare's really been on the ascendancy, uh, just memorized whole plays, whole rafts, whole speeches, whole sections that they think were important and, 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 and meaningful to them. See, we don't do that generally, not nobody, but we tend not to do that anymore. So there's already been a big switch, a big shift afoot. Probably most of us spend more time watching images and sound than reading. This is almost entirely true in the modern world. So this shift is well underway. So I think one thing to look at in the future, which I'm very curious to see, is, is basically Wint's literacy. You know, what does it look like? Um, clearly, we're becoming more like USA Today. Really big picture, teeny tiny text. For good or ill, I don't know, but, but this seems to be part of it. And so, as we globalize, 
and become changed with our relationship to literacy. It changes our relationship to language. It may be, and there's some, how many people have ever used Skype? I mean, this is one of those things. So yeah, so people have, you. wow, that's a lot of people. Uh, um, so notice this, this allows, but, you know, more or less most of the people in the world to communicate with most of the other people in the world, but one-on-one, -on -one, right? So that, that's extraordinary, extraordinary development, but you're not going to write back and forth to each other. You're going to do that orally. That's what the technology likes. That's what we like. We don't like email. We like talking and seeing people. That's very moving, very involving, very much the way we used to live. We could see their faces. We could, we could hear their voices. Many ways more powerful. But again, it is a significant shift from the culture of literacy that we got from the tradition of humanism or in China that came down from the tradition of, of the, the scholastic tradition of the exams. Talk about a literate society, oh my gosh. Those people were incredibly super literate. Um, so it would be a massive change um, in China and the United States if we sh shift away from that model of literacy. India is probably the country that would be the least change because they were never about, there's no sacred books in theory in India, only sacred people. And the sacred people are the ones that you learn from at their feet. Literally, that's what it means. It means to sit at people's feet and learn. That's the way you learn. The books are references. They're great. People know them. But they aren't Bibles or Korans or uh, <coughs> sacred Buddhist texts. The, the, these just basically don't exist because the tradition has still remained powerfully oral. So it might be that the world is becoming more like India less like a Europe and China when it comes to an approach to literacy, which, which would be fascinating and amazing. Um, and then the last note on the, on the visual thing is how many people have some form of digital camera, something that takes digital pictures? Yeah. Notice that this has become ubiquitous. 200 years ago, if you wanted a picture of something, you hired a painter. Now, most people didn't just go, oh, well, I'll paint you and send it off to you. But a lot of people had rudimentary skills because it was so useful. 100 years ago, you started getting the development of photography, a little more than that, but, but basically it becomes more widespread, more functional. You know, it starts to spread. Now, everybody has the capacity to take and share pictures, and it turns out everybody is, give or, <laughs> give, give or take one or two people. Uh, but but it, it, essentially, everybody is now taking pictures of everybody and sending it to everyone simultaneously. <laughs> I don't know why we want to do this, but we seem to want to do this. I, I would like to have a counter on objects in the world that would tell you how many times it had had its picture taken. Right? So it's like, please don't take another picture of me. I'm just a poor mountain. Leave me be. Right? It, it, you know, just click, 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 click. But notice now that we have the capacity, we love images. We love images much more. We find them more moving, more powerful, more interesting than a description of a mountain. And it's very much more quote unquote efficient. I could write a long description of the mountain, which would probably not be very good or convincing or helpful. And it would take a long time. Or I can just take a picture of you, send it to you instantaneously. We like the latter option. Visual imagery is just, is just taking over. Is most of what the internet is streaming, transferring, is images of various kinds, and music, by the way, which I think makes me happy. I think music is the number one most commonly used thing on the internet, which I think is great. Uh, but this is a vast shift. This is, this, is a, this is not a small change. This is a huge change in the way we relate to the world, because we want to see it. We don't want to read about it. We want to see it. How many of you have got a book that you, now you're reading along, you're reading along going, oh, this should have pictures of this, right? You're like, where are the pictures? Why don't they have more pictures? Because it just seems so obvious that they should be there. But the technology, often if you're reading older books, is, it was too expensive to provide a lot of pictures. Now modern books, I just got a, a, a book from the library a couple days ago, that must have 200 pictures in it. And it's a book, it's a history book that, 50 years ago would have had zero pictures. 
quite literally, is it's precisely the kind of history book that wouldn't have had any pictures in it. Now, it's hundreds of pictures in there. Just because we can't, we like the pictures. And I would guess that that book is often checked out and people look at the pictures and check it back in. <laughs> Why not? Very different way of relating to the world. And so when we think about the future of language, if anything, again, one, who the hell knows? Because the history of everything we've covered so far suggests quite strongly who the hell knows. That's what we should have learned from history. Uh, two, that the kinds of changes we're seeing might be different than, than, than we generally think about. Uh, it's not so much as if people are people speaking English or Spanish or French or Chinese or, 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 or Tugluk. It's, oh, we're moving from potentially written to, to imagistic or to oral uh, history. We're moving to universal translation where we don't even understand. Again, we may lose the, the interest or capacity for literacy altogether. It may just seem like a waste of time. We may go back to having scholars who know languages and writing, and then everybody else just has pictures and, and oral communication, because that's really what you need. Um, so, yeah, what it means, I don't know. Where we're going, I don't know. But, but, but watch these things, and, and also think about last time, how you actually interact when you're on the internet, when you're looking at magazines, when you're reading books. What is your experience, and how has that changed in 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years? My guess is if you're old enough and you think about it, you should recognize and feel a profound change from the way you interacted with texts and literature and literacy on language 50 or 60 years ago to today. Probably not a subtle change, but a profound change. So the future of language, I don't know, but there are some hints. Thank you very much. <laughs>